This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Tenth of May, two thousand and twenty, twenty twenty. Wishing Happy Mother's Day to all those mothers out there. We're going to be exploring the theme of being alone together, and. Um, I'd like to dedicate this uh, talk to uh, an old friend of mine called David Christensen, who I just found out um, died, only found out yesterday he died um, on the 21st of June, 2019, aged 79. He, uh, he was a friend who I met at, when I first went to university many years ago, back in the late 70s. And... Uh, He's a very spiritual man and uh, uh, a keen road cyclist and uh, was always very supportive of my aspirations to practice uh, Zen Buddhism. And uh, he was also a, a sociologist and an astrologer. So... Thank you, David, for all your support over the years. I'm going to start um, with a little poem that I wrote uh, a couple of days ago. <clears throat> Thank you, Zazen, for being there for me when there was no one and nowhere else to turn. I sat with you and rested there, free from the need to go anywhere or to be someone. Thank you, Zazen, for letting me be me. Whatever me showed up was okay with you. You never judged, you just allowed judgments to come and go so I could see the changing face of impermanency. Thank you, Zazen, for accepting even my thoughts of rejecting you, of expecting you to somehow give me something, some state of mind that would set me free once and for all. Thank you, Zazen, for bringing the memory of Amanda, who died in a car crash when I was 19. When I was grieving, I sat with you and you held me gently and I sobbed and sobbed till I could sob no more. So that's the, uh, the lead in to a little autobiographical story I'm going to tell um, as a basis of uh, exploring the nature of um, aloneness and togetherness. Um, so as the, uh, the poem alluded to, I was uh, 
19 and um, I enrolled at the uh, ANU, Australian National University that was back in 1976. And uh, I was enrolled in existential philosophy, uh, Russian literature. And uh, so as you can see, I was really intense uh, young man interested in all those big questions. At that time, it was all pretty much theoretical, but, um, but the transition from being at home uh, with mum and dad to the college was difficult for me, as it was for many of us uh, young people. Living in a large uh, college on the campus, a Catholic college, which I didn't really feel a part of and um, living in a little room, um, sharing bathrooms. The little room was like a little cell. Um, it all felt very lonely and alienating. Um, I even put a little quote on the doorway, I remember back there from Herman Hesse's, Hesse's Steppenwolf saying, our only guide is our homesickness. Even then I was feeling homesick not feeling quiet at home, fairly displaced, trying my best to connect. There's a strong sense of isolation that led to loneliness. And uh, I met a young woman called Amanda uh, at a party and she was also feeling extremely alone and quite depressed and uh, we shared some times together. As best as I could, I couldn't really um, help her out of the depression. She was really quite, quite caught in a very severe depression, I think, at the time. And uh, one evening, uh, we had an argument and uh, I said a few very cruel and harsh things to her. And uh, it was just before Easter, and I went home to my parents' place in Wollongong. And uh, when I returned back uh, uh, at the end of the Easter break, um, I was confronted by a couple of the uh, older college residents uh, running up to me saying, Andrew, we thought we couldn't find you. We were wondering where you were. We've just heard that Amanda has died in a car crash. And uh, we thought you might have been with her. So that was my first real experience of the kind of randomness of, of, of life and the, the sense of trauma, um, which at the time I didn't fully appreciate, but it was a huge shattering of everything for me. And um, I ended up um, going to the funeral where I made a little funeral gave a funeral talk. Uh, and uh, in that talk, I talked about the loneliness in the corridors of those colleges as well. And uh, after that, I uh, dropped out of uh, university. I headed back home, I think full of guilt as well, and a sense of uh, 
not knowing what to do with my life, um, I uh, got a job at the steelworks in Wollongong with the intention of um, maybe going to Europe uh, <laughs> to become a writer or something. And but what actually happened was I sort of took flight from that loneliness and uh, resisted at first, but I finally ended up in a relationship with a woman who was a few years older than me and she had two young children. And um, in a way that I ended up marrying that woman and um, she, uh, I thought uh, it was a safe harbor. I thought it was a um, in a way, a way for me to have a ready-made family, I could escape that loneliness, but it was really not a good place and a good way to start a relationship. And, um, and the relationship, of course, uh, um, lasted 15 years, but it uh, came apart. Um, it was a very difficult and uh, a lot of suffering and was involved. As, there were some good times, but such as these turning points in our lives. And... Um, a lot of that came from my inability to make that transition from um, being in the family of origin to setting myself up as a, on my own as an individual. Um, and uh, confronting that loneliness was really difficult for me. So um, in his book, uh, Psychotherapy and Existentialism, um, Irving Yalam, discusses three different categories or three different types of isolation. The first one he calls interpersonal isolation, loneliness. The second one he refers to as intrapersonal isolation, that is being split off or cut off from ourselves. And the third one he speaks about is existential isolation. So I'll just expand on those three categories a little bit. Um, so interpersonal isolation is what I was speaking about in a sense, and but all these are interrelated. We've all experienced times when we were lonely and, uh, and it can even feel like it, it very painful. And, uh, we, 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 we can run away from it or flee from it in different ways. You know, think of alcohol and other substances as well as relationships. One can also, of course, uh, be lonely in a marriage. Um, it's probably important to make a distinction between um, attachment and intimacy. Um, one could meet someone on a, on a, on a train traveling overseas uh, or on a plane and spend a few hours with, with that person without any attachment at all and experience an, an incredible sense of intimacy during the conversation. Whereas one can remain in a marriage for many years uh, because of the security of the attachment, but there's not very much intimacy that's experienced. So in some ways, uh, you know, intimacy is very much the key. Um, and when we think of solitude, um, as opposed to the pain of loneliness, I think that solitude is the ability to be intimate with the self and with the world. So solitude is, is experienced as, um, as a sense of being at home. We don't feel disconnected. We don't, we don't feel unsettled when we're, when we're enjoying our solitude. 
And this capacity to, to actually experience solitude or to experience ourselves being alone is actually, um, it's, a, it's a maturational process, a developmental process. Um, the capacity to be alone is, a, is, is something which um, requires certain conditions. So this often, um, I often refer in my talks to the developmental theory of Russell Mears, who I'm very influenced by at the moment, because a lot of my talks are about trying to understand the different meanings that we, 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 we have of self. And, uh, and his work has, has uh, been in a very intricate uh, ex exploration of the meaning of self. And um, in his work, he talks about the developmental stage where the child is able to start to play on their own with their toys, but at the same time, they're aware of the presence of the mother or the caregiver. So they're alone, but they're together with mum. And in that kind of space, the um, often children at the age of about three or four will start to create little narratives of what they're playing, whether they're playing with the Lego or the bricks or they're making aeroplanes and they'll be talking and a kind of narrative, a very early narrative of self is forming. And Mears regards this as the process whereby eventually that's internalized and becomes a rich inner life. And, um, but of course that's dependent on a number of factors. It's dependent upon relative safety and attuned caregiver. And sometimes when children's uh, lives are disrupted by various kinds of trauma, that um, ability to play uh, alone and develop that narrative is impeded or impinged on in some ways. So that capacity to play gradually translates into this richer inner life that we develop as we get older. And uh, we see that through the... Uh, when we enter into the uh, imaginary play in our, you know, the years from five to 12, just before adolescent, when we really experience the world in a magical way and uh, where that, that inner life is, not, is, is totally not separate from the world. I, could, I still remember believing in Santa Claus and looking out the window to see if I could see the sled, you know, um, and engaging in those imaginary role plays. And then, of course, you know, puberty hits in and we start to see the world in a, in a quite different way. Um, but that inner life still remains and the capacity for intimacy still remains. And that's what uh, eventually that experience of being alone can be something, and I'll come back to this, something that we can actually enhance with our Zazen practice. And it's almost like the way in which we internalize the mother. It's almost like we can also internalize this feeling of being sheltered in the being of beings in a way. So um, the second category that Irvin Yalom talked about was intrapersonal um, isolation. And that's that sense of often, again, as a, as a reaction to various kinds of traumas, people disconnect from um, themselves and isolate or split off parts of themselves. They block particular effects or avoid particular effects which are too difficult, which can't be processed or contained or reflected upon. And um, these kinds of denial and effect blocking, dissociation, tends to drain the aliveness and vitality. And, um, 
And I, I like to, and Mies talks about this as the alienated self. And I like to sort of connect the, that sense of the alienated self with what we refer to in our practice principles as the self-centered self. So the self that is kind of like very much responding from anxiety and fear and, and, and develops defenses and walls to keep the world out, but also cuts off from the, our own selves as well. Our, we lose a sense of intimacy with ourselves and the price we pay for that is a, is a, a sense of inner deadness. Uh, there's a, 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 an impoverishment of our subjectivity of our inner life, which uh, Mias talks about. And uh, that can be experienced as a kind of emptiness, a painful emptiness, not the emptiness that we talk about in Zen, but a painful sense of inner aloneness and inner emptiness. And often people with those kinds of uh, impoverishments um, may, may, you know, um, get into all kinds of ways in which to stimulate themselves, whether it's through self-harm or whether it's through substance abuse, but um, to try and feel alive in some way. Uh, but that's uh, obviously uh, not a good way to go about it. Um, and the other category that uh, Yalam talked about was the existential isolation or the sense of angst, sometimes translated as anxiety. And um, I like to think of this, and you, know, you would have seen this theme coming out today, as a, this is a sense of a, a not-at-homeness in the world. Um, I remember times wandering around the corridors at ANU or wandering through the campus and sometimes feeling a bit of an uncanny feeling of not really belonging there or not really feeling home in the world. And, uh, but, but, but sometimes that would, uh, that would fall away and I could be astonished by the beauty of the mist on the on the, on the little on the river uh in the morning or something like that and i would come back into myself um but this sense of i still um think that this sense of existential uh angst or isolation is again i think very much attributable to trauma i think it's unavoidable that we all go through various kinds of developmental or relational trauma which is unavoidable this can, you know, fragment or break down the self or the sense of feeling at home. And again, that results in that impoverishment. Um, so I've, I've been doing a lot of thinking on reflecting on the meaning of self in our practice and trying to enhance or uh, following on from Barry's work, but to try and develop a sense of what you might call a healthy self rather than a self-centered self. Um, and uh, so I, I see the self-centered self as the kind of insecure self that feels alienated in the world, uh, characterized by that sense of a feeling of, of, of lack, or, um, a sense of emptiness, and then we can get into all those kinds of I'm not good enough variations, I'm a failure, all those kinds of uh, negative uh, attributes that we can get caught into of the self, uh, deficiency stories, etc. And of course, when we're not feeling at home in the world, we go and search, we start to seek. It's not necessarily, I mean, maybe this is a, something we all have to go through in relatively different ways, some kind of journey through a foreign land of the self before we can return home again. And um, so I've, I've, I've 
started to use that metaphor recently in, in my thinking to contrast that alienated self with a different kind of self, which I'll describe as a, a being at home in the world self, or to shorten it, just a homely self. And um, this, again, this self, this homely self is the conditions for that to arise begin in our early infancy and childhood. And whereby the, uh, the caregiver, you know, in their inter interactions with us, creates a sense of being at home. And, um, and I think the Zazen practice, when we come to it in our you know, late 20s or early 30s or later in life, can actually deepen that process as well, that sense of I see Zazen as a kind of making a home in our body, in, our, in the world, and making our body at ho a home, making the world at home, and feeling that sense of kinship with others. And I think that awakens us to Buddha nature, which is often hidden and or forgotten or, or uh, about, uh, that sense of being at home and being. So, but before that homely self develops, we're a mix, as an infant, we're just a mixed bag of affects. We just, we're born and, uh, and we're born crying. And, um, and we require that uh, caregiver to hold us and, uh, and uh, to ease and help us manage those effects that in no way can manage those effects. It's totally dependent upon the caregiver to manage the effects, including positive effects, but as well as the negative effects. And, um, and so um, that sense of the uh, caregiver uh, being able to attune themselves to the child and uh, for the caregiver to show interest and uh, uh, excitement in the child, to enjoy being with the child and the infant, the infant and child, uh, so that the child begins to internalize that attunement and begins to internalize that interest and that enjoyment in their presence. So it develops a deeper sense of, of, of feeling valued. And that sense of feeling valued, that warmth of feeling valued, starts a little nucleus. Um, which arises in the in-between of the, of the child and the caregiver, but it's a very fragile, precious thing, but it's the beginning of that sense of value um, that we bring into the world. And um, so even though that existence is always potentially traumatic, it's only by developing this homely self that we can face these anxieties and begin to integrate them with our aliveness and vitality our resilience and it's that homely self that creates a sense of being at home in the world being at home in being as opposed to trauma which totally overthrows that sense of being at home which disrupts it and fragments it we find ourselves in a very alienated and world for anyone who's experienced really major traumas one of the reports that people make is a sense of everything being shattered and the, and, and just a, the sense of disconnection a sense of not being at home in the world. So, um, and I think to some extent, we can all fluctuate between those two kinds of the alienated states and the at-home states uh, in some ways. Hopefully we, we experience more and more feeling at home, but we can still get disrupted by some kind of um, traumatic memory coming up where we again feel ourselves back in that alienated state. 
but hopefully we develop the confidence that we can integrate that and come back to our homely self. So not only are we alone in the world, but we are also alone with others who are alone. And I think that's, you know, we are wired to connect from the get-go and connect we must. So our Zen practice, I think, helps us to, 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 to build on that capacity for intimacy and authenticity through that special kind of relatedness of what Mears describes as alone togetherness, which begins with the mother and the child. But I think, you know, we can experience, then we can experience that in our intimate relationships as adults, where we have that sense of togetherness, but we can also have a healthy sense of separateness and uh, being able to have a sense of an inner life, which we share and, and we experience intimacy. But I also think that, that the, our Zen practice, and especially sitting together, can build on that um, sense of uh, capacity for intimacy with self and others. And intimacy feels very homely. And um, so, um, so our Zen is a very simple practice, like I said, but it's, uh, it's a communal practice, but it's a very advanced practice, the capacity to sit alone. And, uh, and not only that, we sit alone facing impermanence. We sit alone facing that sense of which everything is transient and there's no inherent substantial self. That kind of experience which often creates the sense of anxiety at the core of our being. But as we sit in Zazen, Zazen's all about creating a sense of home in the world of impermanence. We build our home in impermanence. We don't try and create some kind of castle which nobody will ever uh, penetrate or get into. We actually allow ourselves to feel the insecurity and the impermanence of life. We, we build our home in that. And um, so in, in, in our practice gradually shifts and I think you know, shifts us from that sense of being unsettled, from being not at home, from feeling alienated, to feeling settled, to feeling at home. And, um, and not only do we feel at home with ourselves, and the more we feel at home with ourselves, the more I think we feel at home with everyone else. We can respond to strangers as if they were kin. We, through that process of zazen, recognize that we're all sheltering in the being of beings. We are all connected in that way. We're all kinfolk in that way. And even though self-states come and go and they color and filter our world of others and the world itself, that sense of being at home is really developed by the practice of Zazen. And um, at the core of this homely self, you could continue this metaphor and talk about the feeling of warmth, the feeling of intimacy, the, the home and the half, the sense of where the, the half being where the fire is. And um, so we tender that, we tender that, we tender that warmth and we tender that sense of connection. Um, the hearth, uh, this is a quote from a philosopher called Capobianco. The hearth is the warmth of home. It is being itself. The hearth is being, the source of all beings. And becoming at home in being is the aim the destination of the journeying of the unsettled and the unhomely one. This journey we go on from being unsettled and unhomely to return home to the hearth and fire. 
And I think this, this kind of process is, again, as I said at the beginning of today, is captured by the three refuges that we, that we celebrate in Zen practice. The first one being the Buddha. You are the Buddha. Zazen. Zazen is practice, practices enlightenment. Um, Zazen is practicing being at home, being at home in being. This is also being alone, but experiencing being at home as at the same time we are alone. Just sitting is practice and practice is enlightenment in that sense. Nothing is missing, complete just as it is. Zazen, like in my poem, is always here for us. It's the one reliable thing. In fact, even Zazen, don't identify Zazen just with formal sitting. Be Zazen every moment of your life. It's always just this and uh, zazen is always here with us just that we forget it like we forget being the significance of being the, the wonder of being we can forget being we get caught up in the sometimes the uh, the concerns of everyday life and uh, which take us away from that wonder so in a way zazen itself is like the mother like avalokiteshvara that we ourselves continue to internalize, the mother of wisdom and compassion. Here is home because our Hazazen makes here homely. We just leave everything as it is because being just this moment is the practicing of the Dharma, the second refuge. Being just this moment, practicing the Dharma. We take refuge in the Dharma. We take refuge in being just this moment. We build our home in impermanence and interdependence. We are the Sangha. We take refuge in the Sangha. We're sitting alone, but we know we're sitting with others, sitting with others who care. In fact, it's our care that makes the, the self homely, that makes the world homely. That care that we first internalize from our caregivers, that we bring to ourselves, that we bring to others, that even the care that we bring to our washing up, our, the care that we get expressed in mindfulness, the, the care of making our bed in the morning, the care of washing, that's all practicing care and making the world homely. And um, so in this togetherness, we embrace our aloneness, or in this aloneness, we embrace our togetherness. We are alone together. And this takes us back full circle, back to Zazen again. Zazen, Dharma, Sangha, Zazen, Dharma, Sangha. So these three refuges can be seen as a form of relatedness, which facilitates the experience of self-intimacy and intimacy with others. We experience intimacy when sitting in silence, and we extend this to include others when we sit with others. And when we converse with others in the open forum, we sit with respect and we honor and we honor the silence and we listen deeply. And uh, so from these three refuges, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, we meet others in the world and we honor our human needs for connection and we honor our, honor our vulnerabilities. And uh, in giving over our trust to the other, we let go of our fear and hatred. So the three refuges teach us how to practice being with others in the world, how we meet others as kinsfolk, how we 
learn to trust and to let go of our own fears and hatreds.